Hi everyone, and welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we explore the science of crime and the practical application of this science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners, as well as other professionals. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Take advantage of the advanced video capabilities offered by Bosch to help reduce your shrink risk. Integrate video recordings with point-of-sale data for visual verification of transactions and exception reporting. Use video analytics for immediate notification of important AP-related events and leverage analytics metadata for fast forensic searches for evidence and to improve merchandising and operations. Learn more about extending your video system beyond simple surveillance in Zones 1 through 4 of LPRC's Zones of Influence by visiting Bosch online at boschsecurity.com. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Crime Science, the podcast from the LPRC. This is the latest in our weekly update series. I'm joined by Tony D'Onofrio and Tom Meehan and our producer, Diego Rodriguez. We're going to talk a little bit about what's going on around the world um, that we think might be helpful. And uh, I'll start off uh, as per normal right now, unfortunately, talking a little about the pandemic just because it has such a critical impact on everything we do. Um, We want to get better at what we're doing now. We want to get better at prevention and uh, suppression in the future. so we don't have to keep going through this. Uh, looks like um, there's some <clears throat> good research around why children are not so adversely affected by the COVID-19 disease, by SARS-CoV-2 virus, uh, where we know in the past, like the Spanish flu and others, have uh, children have been the most vulnerable and uh, sometimes the young people the most seriously affected. Uh, and so in this case, though, there one hypothesis is just the fact that uh, Younger kids are so heavily exposed to viruses all day and every day with friends and at school and other places um, and just tend to be viral vectors themselves. Um, and so there's probably some more conferred immunity and more uh, preparedness there in their immune systems. The second, again, because the young immune system is just so robust, but just uh, reacts so quickly, so immediately. Um, at the antibody and cellular level, evidently, is what the research is telling us. So those two are pretty com- powerful combinations on top of just typically overall general good health um, and higher levels of fitness uh, in children. So uh, just food for thought on that. Uh, looking around the world a little bit, um, the other research showing things that make sense, and we know this makes sense, I guess, for all of us all the time, but uh, some research around eating leafy greens or drinking uh, drinks that include leafy greens um, seems to have a pretty uh, significant effect on uh, how serious the disease can progress in our uh, recovery from that uh, disease itself, COVID-19. Looking at uh, the infection rate, again, we see over in China, Hong Kong, uh, but also we're seeing in the UK some spikes going on right now. So we continue to, to track that and see what's going to happen. Um, the U.S. just doesn't right now seem to be affected by that. We always know there's some kind of lag, and uh, everybody's hoping that that's uh, not going to play out in this case. Um, looking at uh, FDA, uh, there there's word out that they are preparing to okay a second booster for all uh, Americans over the age of 50. In other words, you've got, gotten the one or the two-dose course, you've gotten a booster uh, now, a second booster. Um, but it's interesting that the U.S. Um, may not be prepared anymore, have the resources to fund 
uh, COVID-19 testing and treatments that that funding is now run out or running out. Um, and so they're not sure if they're going to refund that test, that free testing and free treatment uh, going forward, at least at this point. So we'll stay tuned to see what they do about that. Uh, Blue, Bloomberg reporting that there's a now globally uh, switch from a shortage of vaccines available all around the world to an actual glut, which we've seen in the United States for quite a while now, much more vaccine available than demand for the vaccine. Uh, or vaccine usage. So quite a turnaround globally, um, and that, that's probably a testament to uh, ramped up manufacturing, more efficient distribution, as uh, we learned how to do that around the world, how to administer vaccines, even in some of the most remote places, particularly the vaccines that were required way below sub-zero uh, freezing temperatures. Uh, that's very difficult in uh, places like the United States, much less in, in much less urbanized environments or sophisticated transportation and storage environments. Um, so that's probably good news, though, the fact that uh, clearly that there's a glut of vaccine available around the world. And, and the fact that so many people have been vaccinated now in the United States, uh, we've talked about over a quarter billion Americans have now been vaccinated. Uh, now about 257 million Americans have been vaccinated uh, globally and astounding. Uh, 5.1 billion humans have now been vaccinated uh, for this, uh, which is just staggering when you think about that level of vaccination. Again, we talked about there's a glut now of vaccine available. Um, so vaccines continue, but certainly doesn't seem like the rate <clears throat> that we saw uh, need or the need for. Um, the vaccines uh, for new very uh, for new types of vaccines, um, both how what they do, how they do it. Um, in, in human clinical trials, still well over 100 different candidates moving through the pipeline with 53 uh, vaccine candidates in phase one human trials, 47 candidates in phase two human trials, and 50 now in phase three human trials. Just an incredible amount of vaccines going through uh, very rigorous, uh, double-blind, uh, randomized controlled trials. Uh, at, at the large scale that a phase three trial involves. Uh, 19 vaccines have emergency use authorization. Of course, now a dozen have full approval. Uh, Israel continues to do a lot of research and has been on the forefront. Small, very small, but yet very sophisticated, organized, disciplined type of a medical system or a country with a sophisticated medical system uh, doing research. They found that in their country and their sampling, uh, a fourth dose, in other words, what we talked about before, um, where maybe a second booster for those uh, over 50, um, in their cases, reduced death risk by COVID-19 uh, or uh, as a result of having COVID-19, uh, reduce it by almost 80%. So still significant effects. Um, we know there are negative effects to the vaccine. Um, most are very, very minor. There are some that aren't so minor. But again, where we're looking at uh, over five billion people and a quarter of a million of a billion uh, Americans, it looks like just very, 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 very small rate compared to those that have gotten some of the particularly some of the long COVID diseases. We've talked about some of the effects on our brains and other parts of our body. Um, so um, but, but now switching over to what we know a little more about on this podcast, this team, um, and Tom may touch on some of this, but um, just the theft and fraud, which was tragically un inevitable, 
um, at the PPP level, providing that COVID relief to organizations so they wouldn't have to uh, lay off their employees, uh, but rather continue onward. Um, there's as much as maybe even more than $80 billion in fraud. And we've seen these stories uh, on the media, people driving around their Escalades, buying yachts, um, all kinds of things uh, for their organizations. Uh, and some of the organizations that received the aid that there's, you know, that just made no sense. Uh, but over 80 billion in fraud is the estimate right now, according to the Washington Post reporting. Uh, they're also reporting that uh, on the individual side, the COVID unemployment relief is even more significant, uh, probably over 90 billion in fraud, uh, theft by Americans claiming to have been unemployed by COVID. They really weren't. They may have had other side jobs. They were doing other things. So um, we can see that uh, we're talking about just uh, almost $200 billion in fraud from the COVID relief. Uh, phenomenal. We'll go over, um, finally switch over to, <clears throat> excuse me, a little about LPRC. Um, Chad McIntosh, our COO, just got back from the ISC, ISC West and uh, International Security Conference um, and reported uh, large, robust crowds, a lot of participation. Um, and uh, Tony D'Onofrio might mention a little bit about it because he also was there. Um, Tom may have been as well. So I'll leave it to you guys to report a little bit about that. But that gives us probably some indicator as, as we all kind of come out from under our desk and are getting more and more engaged and involved and trying to be safe about things, but still trying to move on with our lives, knowing that we've got these viruses are, are becoming endemic uh, of different types. So um, we've got uh, the real conference coming up. And again, I want to reinforce that at the LPRC, we'll be having an open house on April 27th and 28th. So April 27th and 28th. And if you have any thoughts or plans of coming by and sitting down with us, touring, hanging out uh, in Gainesville at our lab complex, more than welcome you again, operations at lpresearch.org that April 27th and 28th. Um, we've recently had uh, quite a few visitors right now. We've got flock safety in our labs. Um, looking at how we're going to deploy and test uh, broader ecosystems and partnerships, um, in this case with license plate uh, readers and other technologies that don't have to have a lot of PII, but then can help us sense uh, and find uh, high rate, high impact offenders uh, by their vehicles uh, and what places might be more at risk than others. Uh, mentioned before, we had Esrian, um, the largest map. Uh, software and technology produces in the world going through and implementing with our team, particularly with uh, Sarah and James and Orion uh, and myself and Corey and Rochelle. Um, we just completed, I mentioned before, advanced auto parts going through with that incredible crew, over 60 of their top uh, asset protection leaders. Continue with communication and follow up with them on some of that program. Uh, we've got TJX coming up today, tomorrow, the next day. Um, working with the TJX uh, asset protection loss prevention teams across their marshals and TJ Maxx and home goods and so on uh, up in Canada, uh, at HomeSense and so forth. So we're excited there. I uh, have the opportunity, excited to get up into Canada next week with Loblaw and their chains, but their world-class uh, team led by Dean Enrico. So we're, we're really pleased and 
excited to work with so many leading retailers, their, their teams, and working at the different scales. Um, yesterday, we had the LPRC Board of Advisors um, chair and vice chair meeting. Excited, a quorum, you know, everybody's out and about. So uh, we had our chair, Scott Zyder, um, of Price, Chop Price Chopper and other chains fame here, uh, as well as uh, Gary Smith from Target and Kevin Larson from Kroger Company. We had Ehab from Party City. Um, we had Fred from Bloomingdale's uh, and so on and uh, plating out the year, what we need to do, how we're going to do it, and getting some good insights and input. Talked a lot about uh, the 2022 version of the LPRC impact here in Gainesville that uh, October 3rd, 5th of this year. Please budget your time and travel for that. We are uh, already started on the content, the logistics, um, and so on. Diego and Chad and others on the team are working away on that uh, logistics side. Um, so uh, on the Innovate side, um, we are continuing to add sponsors here in the LPRC Innovate program. Again, we've got uh, the five centers of excellence here, the AI Solve, got Safer Places Center of Excellence, we've got Connected Place, we've got Connected Enterprise, and then finally we've got Connected Community. So with those five centers of excellence, each have five to eight program uh, opportunities under them. So these these programs and the sponsorships are allowing the sponsors to get involved. The 16 uh, retailers on our advisory panel planning out and executing Innovate on a regular basis. They get a lot of branding and exposure and other opportunities. And then, uh, but what it's allowing us to do, the funding, the extra resources is to bring on and expand uh, our research and development team. And uh, it's allowed us to bring on James Martin, uh, and Orion uh, San Angelo add two. And as we continue to add sponsors, we'll be able to bring on another researcher and then another research assistant. So the goal here is to have, uh, in addition to myself, have uh, eight person research team. It's going to allow us to choose just an incredible amount of things here. Um, so with no further ado, uh, I'd like to turn it over to Tony D'Onofrio, and then we'll next go to Tommy and Tony. Thank you very much, uh, Reed. And again, great update, uh, Bolton uh, LPRC. Good to see all that engagement and also what's going on with COVID. Yes, I was at ISC West, as was Tom, and I guess we were so busy we didn't even see each other. I can tell you that I was surprised by the number of major retailers that brought multiple members of their teams there that I was able to meet with. So it looks like we're back in terms of uh, regular events which bodes well for um, impact and other events that you're planning and that we're planning. Uh, so let me jump in into two topics that uh, have been uh, in our news a lot, uh, and this is the metaverse and NFTs. And I'm going to look at them from the consumer or the buying public point of view, and what do they think about them? So in other words, how do they play in retail? So for answers, I'm going to turn to the uh, chain storage which, I pre, which actually published a survey this past week. While only 5% of respondents said they are part of the metaverse, the survey still reveals the potential for the metaverse as a retail channel. In the metaverse, consumers use augmented and virtual reality technology to digitally engage with each other and their surrounding with crossover into the physical world. And again, some of this has already been experimented at the LPRC, so I would encourage 
everyone to join for that. But the this particular survey revealed that 41% of respondents are interested in connecting with others virtually, while 26% reported feeling neutral and 19% were not interested. More than half of respondents have heard of the metaverse, with 42% saying they don't know much about it. Of the respondents who have not heard of the metaverse, 76% are disinterested or neutral, while 27, 25% expressed interest. Uh, while the 42% have not have seen any brands in the metaverse, among those that have, it's interesting which brands are already are active in the metaverse, and they are the one that calls itself Meta, which is Facebook, so Meta Facebook, Nike and Microsoft, Disney and Coca-Cola. In addition, the survey indicates the Metaverse brand recognition is emerging for Wendy's, Gucci, Louis Vuitton, Chipotle, NASCAR, Hyundai, and Balachenka. Although they're receiving currently 10% or less customer recognition. The survey also uh, examined the impact of celebrity influencers in the metaverse, finding that more than half of respondents are not interested uh, in uh, engaging with celebrities. But for those that are, the top celebrities that want to speak to in the virtual world are Lady Gaga, followed by Rihanna, Snoop Dogg, and Paris Hilton. So that's who they want to meet in the metaverse. Also interesting, this survey examined NFTs or non-fungible tokens, which have been in the news a lot. More than half of respondents have heard but not acquired NFTs. Of those that have heard of them but not acquired, nearly 48% are not likely to acquire one at all, and 18% are likely to very likely. Over a third of respondents have not specifically heard of NFTs. And the ones that I've heard about it, which is roughly about 9%, 46% acquired them due to the ex expected increase in value over time. Another 38% acquired them because of the like to design, 28% because they support the artist, and 28% uh, they acquired them because it was exclusive to them. Of note, uh, uh, in the article from Experiential, from the Experiential e-commerce platform Obsess, the in indicates that 70% of all consumers who have shopped online in a virtual store have made a purchase. So we are starting to buy things in the virtual world. Overall, one quarter of respondents in the Obsess survey have shopped in a 3D virtual store. Among that group, 70%, uh, including 69%, of Gen Xers, 77% of millennials and 67% of Gen Xers have made a purchase in a virtual store. So those younger generation are starting to engage in the metaverse and also have interest in NFTs. Although I saw re recently in the Wall Street Journal that there's a severe decline in interest in NFTs. So we'll have to see where that goes. I do believe the metaverse will play NFTs still uh, uh, room to see where it goes. Uh, this past week, the NRF also published the, uh, their version of the 2020, 2022 Top 50 Global Retailers. They partnered with Kandar for the research. The top 10 uh, retailers, top 10 global retailers from the 22 list are Walmart, which is from the USA, of course, 
Amazon from the USA, the Schwartz Group, which owns little stores from Germany, Aldi from Germany, Casco from the US, Ahol Del Hayes from the Netherlands, Carrefour from France, IKEA from Sweden, 7&I, which runs 7-Eleven from Japan, and Home Depot from the USA. So summarizing the top 10, four of the top 10 are from the US, five are from Europe, and one is from Asia. And then finally this week, uh, the growth of e-commerce is not abating. And there was some interesting uh, data this week, again, from uh, Chain Storage on the growth of e-commerce from a survey of the future of digital store shelf reports from Edge by Essential, which stated that online worldwide uh, retail sales reach 2.4 trillion in gross merchandise value by 2026. This means that e-commerce will account for 40% of global retail sales by 2026, with store-based retail sales dropping from 60% to, to 60% from 69%. In addition, from 2021 to 2026, e-commerce will make uh, up 63% of all gross merchandise value, outpacing every other store-based retail channel. During the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020, e-commerce activity increased by 37% worldwide. The study indicates the majority of shoppers now begin their product searches on digital channel with one in three uh, store purchases beginning online. And when in-store shoppers are increasingly engaging with digital experiences through mobile apps, QR codes, and social media and payments. Other interesting findings from the surveys, retailers lose up to more than a fifth of their weekly sales for every day their product is out of stocks. Search is the now preferred way to shop and entry point to product and brand discovery. And for products sold online and a product detail page and online packaging are critical uh, for promotional material for products displayed on the product shelf. So. E-commerce is here. All surveys indicate it's going to continue to grow, but that does not mean stores are not going out of business. E-commerce is a discovery channel in a lot of ways for ultimately a lot of the merchandise still bought in the store. And for that, uh, with that update, let me turn it over to Tom. Well, thank you, Tony. Thank you, Rita. And yes, uh, I was at ISC West. I wanted to just start off by saying it was extremely busy and Tony and I did meet our, miss our, each other because of that, but uh, a good crowd, uh, certainly a different vibe at ISC West because I think everybody was very excited to be out and about. Um, there was a, 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 a slight difference in vendors, but not, not enough that I think I would say that it changed the show. There were certainly uh, a lot of international folks at uh, the NRF Big Show, and I think there were some international folks that were missing, if you will, um, from this event. And that had, a, you know, I, I touched base with a couple of people and it had more to do with travel and just other things going on than the COVID piece. So I think we are somewhat out of the woods. Um, I want to start actually with what Ruth Reed uh, mentioned earlier, which was um, what arguably could be the biggest fraud in, in U.S. history. And the Department of Justice is aggressively uh, going after PPE, PPP loan uh, fraudsters. And the numbers are, are 
uh, kind of staggering of what is believed. Obviously, this is still in the estimate phase, but when you think of it, you know, the 80 billion mark as a potential, it's pretty significant uh, for all intents and purposes. And just to give some context, that's about 10% of the total uh, loan, uh, PPP loans handled out for COVID relief. Uh, so the pay, Paycheck Protection Program, all these P's are, are a little bit confusing sometimes, uh, is what it's really referred to. And the idea was that businesses uh, would be able to take advantage of this loan during um, COVID and have forgiveness on it, basically the government giving this money in order to keep employment. Uh, so there were criteria that had to be met. And one of the main criteria were that you had to keep a, a large percentage of your employees employed in order to get this. And it was based on revenue. So there was a criteria here. But when you think about what we know, the Department of Justice is estimating today is $80 billion, 10% of those were fraud. And, and we're already starting to see arrests um, being made and uh, extravagant purchases, uh, you know, sports cars, yachts, um, all sorts of things that, that um, are coming out of this. And it's it's prevalent in the news today. I think it, it was in the, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, ABC, NBC. Everybody had a report that went out um, in the last week or so. Uh, and it, it's been um, good, uh, good to see the Department of Justice on it. They're, they're predominantly using the False Claims Act that's been used to pursue the fraud claims. Uh, so the False Claims Act allows the Department of Justice really to go after this and and uh, it enforces it under that. So uh, I think we're going to continue to see cases come out. We're starting to see sentences. Um, and a lot of the sentences, are not that I'm minimizing this, are for fraud in the million to $2 million ranges. That's what we're starting to see. Uh, we'll continue to see, I think, the larger the larger scale fraud coming out. And then additionally, which I don't think um, we've fully uncapped today, um, is there is you know, a, and this is a crazy number, if you think, uh, uh, from 90 billion to 400 billion believed to have been stolen from uh, the unemployment relief program. So the US government uh, issued $900 billion, so nearly a trillion dollars in, in COVID unemployment relief. And this is still being heavily investigated, but there is this, this number between 90 billion and 400 billion of unemployment relief um, that is fraudulent. So there, there is a push to go after that as well. There is a little bit of gray in this. And what I mean by that is that there were rules that changed during unemployment benefits from the federal mandate. So for instance, one of the big ones that really opened the door for fraud is pre-COVID, if you were self-employed, you really didn't have any unemployment benefits. During COVID, uh, the federal government opened what would never, never been done you know, before as to this methodology of if you were a self-employed individual or a contract individual that you were able to apply and receive um, a COVID-related unemployment benefits. So if you were an Uber driver or if you were someone that owned their, your own self-employed business, you were able to um, get unemployment, which hadn't happened before. And where the gray comes into play is there were some folks that um, had a mix of there were percentages of you were allowed to collect unemployment and do certain things. So there is some some investigative piece here where people took advantage of that while working, basically working that job and then collecting unemployment at the same time. But when you think of this, the, the, the sheer volume of fraud here, 
you know, taking into consideration the 80 billion on the PPP and then the 90 billion, which is what they're estimating in the minimum. This is a substantial, substantial amount of fraud. Uh, and it really leads to what we talk about often on the podcast here is that uh, unfortunately, there are a lot of good programs, a lot of good technologies, a lot of good things that nefarious actors take advantage of. And we talk about that all the time. Um, and this is going to be one of those ones that I think we're going to see for some time. Um, and, you know, there's another $80 billion in a separate covert disaster relief program that we haven't even really scratched the surface of. So um, I think you'll you actually will see uh, in the news reports they're actually starting to call things out and the one that i remember very vividly is that there was a gentleman in irving uh, irvine california that bought um a ferrari and there's a picture of that person and the ferrari so when you think about this these are not only is this fraud in some cases it's extravagant you know yachts boats houses um and that makes the case easier to solve and easier to go after because the Department of Justice has a tangible, hey, you bought this $350,000 car. We know that you didn't have the income to do that. And that makes it really easy in some senses for the cases to come to a quicker close. So we'll continue to monitor that and uh, we'll watch that and we'll, we'll, we'll keep the audience here updated. Uh, just real quick on the breach front, uh, we talk about cyber instances all the time. Microsoft uh, did finally confirm that there was um, a breach and um, still a lot of information coming out about this. I think as early as um, the Friday, there was even more information. Uh, this breach is a little bit different than some of the other ones we talked about because it leaks the their source code being leaked. So this breach affects source code. What Microsoft has publicly stated is that their source code related to Cortana, which is their voice assistant, Bing, uh, and then some other programs. Why this is risky is because obviously in a non-open source platform, source code is what potentially keeps things safe. Um, even an open source platform, it does. So the risk for everybody here is we don't necessarily know what um, information was leaked and what that leads to for potential security holes as well. Um, you will you can actually go to the dark web today and purchase Microsoft credentials that were part of this leak. Um, it, it, I'm not 100% sure because I haven't actually validated what those credentials do, but basically what the reporting is saying is that there are Microsoft internal credentials. At this point, I'm, I'm, I don't wanna make any assumptions, but I'm sure so, a lot of that has been addressed. The other thing uh, that was uh, compromised is credentials to access uh, VPN and, and internal facing devices and systems. So this is a, a pretty significant breach. And I think all of this information at this point is still not necessarily confirmed. There was another breach recently that was pretty significant too, which was a company called Okta. Uh, and Okta is actually a single sign-on or um, a middleman uh, for sign-on. So the concern there is Okta actually manages sign-ons for major organizations. That's what they do. So if you're in the IT space and you ever think here the terminology or non-single sign-on or active directory, Okta actually confirmed in January that, that they had a breach in January last week. Um, and actually there are screenshots of their internal network and information available on uh, the dark web today. I did actually see some of the screenshots. I went out and looked to see what I would see just because um, the implications of a breach when you have a 
third-party provider that manages login potential. Obviously, there to me that is just as significant as the Microsoft one, and it's probably uh, unknown of what the risk is today. What I saw was really just screenshots, though screenshots of screen um, of uh, validating that the breach actually did happen. Um, so. I think there's just, you know, continue to talk about the data breach piece and I'll just touch on one more and and um, and Samsung also had a breach and not, you know, there was about 190 to 300 gigabytes of information that was taken, a lot of code and screenshots here. And it looks at this stage that at least two of those breaches are related to the same hacking group. Um, so why is that kind of, in, 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 there's a relationship there. I think that it's still a little bit unknown if that's actually 100% accurate. I think with all these hacking groups, it's very hard to validate exactly um, who does what. I, I, I feel like it's almost like a terrorist where a lot of people take uh, responsibility and until you actually see the information, but the hacking group um, uh, is uh, lapsus cyber attacks. So it, it, it's the, they're using um, a whole bunch of different methodology here, but one of the things I would say is that this is a, a very significant, significant group. Um, there is some kind of bright side to this, if you will, is that um, there were seven teenagers arrested last week in relationship to the group. Uh, I believe all of them were in the UK, but so as we have talked about before, this group is responsible for Ubisoft, um, NVIDIA, Microsoft, and Samsung. Um, so breach, ransomware, cyber incidents. I want to use the word cyber incidents. Uh, I, I forgot to say that at the beginning because it's not always ransomware or breach. So this is a pretty prolific group, and they're obviously somewhat capable because they're. If you if you look at the list there, you, NVIDIA, <laughs> Samsung, Okta, Ubisoft, Microsoft sort of some substantial technology companies with really, really robust technology capabilities. Um, and seven people were arrested between the ages of 16 and 21 in conjunction with the investigation. I think it's still uh, a little bit early to know what that means. Were they actually a part of the breaking into the, the systems or were they, were they perpetrators? Were they delivering information? There'll definitely be more to come. The Verge actually wrote a good piece on it uh, to talk about it. And then just uh, two other kind of cyber incident pieces. And I think um, there's one one thing is there's a serious security uh, ransomware out there today that's called Deadbolt. And one of the things that this has been out um, since January of 2021, but now we're starting to see this resurface in March. And the interesting part here is this ransomware, not only does it lock up your files, but it is specifically designed to attack backups. So when we talk about uh, backing up your files, that's usually one of the things we say is that back up your files for ransomware. And if you do that, that's your best line of defense. But as we've said all along, we continue to see a more intelligent uh, at attack vectors um, in using the same technologies that we are to thought off attacks. They are using artificial intelligence and machine learning. And with some of these ransomware attacks, they lay dormant and look for the appropriate time um, to attack or take advantage of the system. And then last, but certainly not least, is if you use the Chrome browser, you want to make sure that you're updated to the most recent um, um, version of their software. There was a pretty significant security uh, vulnerability identified. It was a zero-day vulnerability, which means they had no pre- um, 
information about this. This was something that happened and then got out. Um, this zero day was reported back in February, but now has been patched. Um, and uh, I think um, they, the, the interesting part is they were listed by the CB that the threat analyst groups were listing them as not a serious threat. But the reality here is that um, these do open you up to a significant um, vulnerability. Um, the likelihood of it being taken advantage of, it really depends on whose report you read. But if your simple thing here is if you're using um, uh, Chrome today, it's just go ahead and make sure you have that updated. And we always talk about this on the, on the, the podcast here is update your systems, patch early, patch often, uh, your phones, your systems, everything. And I'm constantly seeing people uh, and both personally and professionally that say they don't want to update their phones until they hear whether the, the update is, is okay and whether there's bugs. And what I can tell you is the bugs that you will find in an update will not, not anywhere near be comparable what will occur if you have, um, you know, your phone uh, with a vulnerability and somebody getting your personal data. So please patch, patch early, patch often and update. Uh, and uh, I'll just circle back real quick on um, ISC West because I thought it was um, something that Tony and I always talk about. We always talk about digital transformation every time we're together. But one thing I saw at ISC West this year um, that was different than past years is we, we've seen the word AI used everywhere. Uh, for many years, and I often say sometimes it's a buzzword, but what I saw this year at ISC West is uh, a lot of true machine learning, a lot of um, the uh, video analytics solutions, um, imaging solutions, um, data analytics solutions, uh, really a lot of things where modeling was being implemented in, in real fashions, where in the past, I, I, I'm, I'm not uh, downplaying the AI piece because AI is, you know, using a computer to mimic human behavior. But really, this year, um, I was pleased and impressed to see the number of solutions out there uh, in the space that really, really were taking advantage of the machine learning aspects and allowing machines to have, yes, human programmed algorithms, but that learned the actual environment they were in. And whether that was a physical security application, a data application, um, or, uh, you know, an, a video AI or computer vision application, what was really nice was to see that as digital transformation occurs, that the full use of the availability of, of AI and ML it was being taken advantage of. So with that, I will turn it back over to Reed. Thanks so much again, Tony and Tom, for all the great information um, and all the sharing, a lot to think about and get better at. I wanna thank Diego Rodriguez, our producer. Uh, most of all, I wanna thank you all the listeners. Um, stay in touch with us, let us know what you need. Uh, we're always at operations at lpresearch.org and your, your ideas, your questions, uh, your thoughts are always, always welcome. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast, presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council and sponsored by Bosch Security. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more crime science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Loss Prevention Research Council. 